Father, we thank you for your word. I thank you for this dramatic moment in the earthly life of our Lord and Savior, his coronation when he entered Jerusalem as the King of Kings. We thank you for the record of it in all four Gospels, the significance of Jesus coming into Jerusalem. We know to die for our sins, to be that Savior. We look forward to his second coming when he returns as the King of Kings. But for now, we worship him as as that lamb that was willing to die in our place, be our substitute, take the punishment that our sins deserve. I pray, Lord, that you grow our appreciation and thankfulness for Christ and what he's done for us. Give us understanding of this passage. I pray if there's any unbelievers who have joined us here today, I do thank you for their presence. We pray they wouldn't leave here the way that they came, Lord, that they would be born again. And think about um, your word producing that faith in their lives that can save them, and we pray for that for them, Lord. Pray you can be glorified during this time, and we ask this in Jesus' name. Amen. Amen, amen. All right, well, good to see all of you. The title of this morning's sermon is, Why Even the Rocks Would Cry Out. So on Sunday mornings, we're working our way through Luke's gospel, verse by verse. We find ourselves at Luke 19. We started the triumphal entry last week, and we will finish it this morning. When I was in Army ROTC, there was something called an ITT course. ITT stands for Individual Tactical Training. You've probably seen courses like these in movies that depict um, basic training, or if you've been in the military, then you've probably been on courses like these multiple times. Unlike obstacle courses, which teams typically go through together, I, and are uh, intended to build teamwork, kind of think of that uh, imagery of, you know, the squad lifting each other up over, over the wall. ITT courses are performed individually, hence the word individual in the acronym. ITT courses include numerous obstacles that involve running, climbing, swinging, balancing, high crawling, low crawling, jumping, dropping, and sometimes swimming. And so you move from one obstacle to the next as quickly as possible with soldiers yelling at you that you need to move faster, um, regardless of how fast you happen to be moving. It's never fast enough. And the entire course is laid out to you, so, or laid out for you. You don't get to decide whether to go left or whether to go right. It's evident when you finish this obstacle, you're going to move on to the next one. You don't get to do them out of order. You don't get to look at one and think it's too difficult and then skip that one and then go on to the next one. If you thought you did poorly on one, you don't get to go back and, and redo it. And as you read the Gospels, you might notice that Jesus' ministry seemed like this. That it was a course, which is the way he described his ministry at one point, even in Luke 13, 32, he said, the third day, referring to the day of the resurrection, I finished my course. So he saw it like a course. And Jesus keeps moving from one obstacle or one event to the next in the order that God the Father had laid out for him. And there was no turning to the left or the right. There was no deciding that this obstacle looks unpleasant or difficult and so that uh, I don't want to do it or I'm going to skip that. There was no deciding that, well, I want to do this one before this one. There was just going through that course, obstacle after obstacle, the way that God the Father had laid it out for him. And you can hear Jesus describe his ministry this way. John 5.30, he said, I seek not my own will, but the will of him who sent me. John 6.38, I have come down from heaven not to do my own will, which is to say not to run my own course, but the will or the course of him who sent me. Matthew 26.39, the most dramatic moment, Jesus said this, my father, if it's possible, let this cup pass from me. Nevertheless, not as I will, but as you will. 
So he was describing that course behind, be, uh, before him. He didn't get to decide to go left or right. He didn't get to skip obstacles. He didn't get to do them out of order. And this brings us to lesson one. It's because Jesus was following a divine timeline. Lesson one, Jesus was following a divine timeline. To fully appreciate the triumphal entry, it's important to understand that Jesus was following a divine timeline. And I think the best way to understand this is to look at different events during his earthly ministry that reveal this. So we're going to be jumping around a bit in the Gospels before turning to the triumphal entry in Luke 19. I don't like spending a lot of time flipping around, so just so you know, I actually, after I finish a sermon, I usually go back, or while I'm preparing the sermon, and try to arrange it in such a way that it limits the amount of flipping around that you have to do, trying to put, uh, you know, verses that are near each other together, and if a verse brings us too far away from where we're currently at, then uh, I'll usually just read that instead of having you turn there. So we can tell Jesus was following this course that his father laid out for him, and if you're in Luke 19 still, let me show you just in this chapter. Look at verse 5. This is when Jesus encounters Zacchaeus, Luke 19, 5. It says, when Jesus came to the place, he looked up at him and said to him, Zacchaeus, hurry and come down, for I must stay at your place today. Now, when it says, when Jesus came to the place, that doesn't mean when he came to the place that Zacchaeus was up in the tree. It means that when he reached the place that he was supposed to reach. It means when he reached this divine appointment that God had laid out for him. It means the place he was divinely appointed to speak to Zacchaeus and invite himself to Zacchaeus' house. Notice Jesus used the word must. I must stay there. So it wasn't random, it wasn't chance, it wasn't coincidental, it wasn't something that he had the opportunity to do, it was something that he had to do. Robert Stein wrote, the word must implies a divine necessity to do so. He was following the Father's will, and it meant that he had to go to Zacchaeus' house. And this is also why Jesus said that it had to be what? It had to be today. It must be today. I'm going there today. That's what's next on the timeline. As I'm going through this course, this is the next event for me. So I must go to your house, and I must go there today. If you think about last Sunday's sermon, when we began the triumphal entry, Jesus laid out with such detail exactly what was going to transpire with the donkey. Look in verse 30, Luke 19, verse 30. Go into the village in front of you, where on entering you'll find a colt tied on which no one has ever sat. Untie it and bring it here. So notice the certainty with which Jesus says this. He doesn't say you, you'll go into the village and you might see a donkey there. The owners might say this and then you might do this. He describes exactly what's going to happen because of his omniscience. Verse 31, if anyone asks you, which should really be understood as when they ask you, why are you untying it? Say this, the Lord has need of it. Just as Jesus said, verse 32, those who were sent away went, they found it just as Jesus told them. As they're untying the colt, the owner said, why are you untying the colt? They said, the Lord has need of it. Jesus could see exactly what God the Father wanted to happen, and he relayed that to the disciples so that he could continue his course. I'll show you some other examples from Jesus' life. Turn to Mark 1. Turn to Mark 1. One book to the left. Mark 1, 
verses 40 to 42 jesus cleanses the leper we don't have to read those verses but jesus cleanses the man of leprosy and then look at verse 43 jesus so mark 1 43 jesus sternly charged him and sent him away after cleansing of leprosy and said to him notice this see that you say nothing to anyone but go show yourself to the priest and offer for your cleansing what moses commanded for a proof to them now if you weren't familiar with jesus regularly saying something like this after performing miracles would it surprise you or perhaps if you don't remember the other times he said this that jesus said what to the man that you wouldn't expect him to say or at least i wouldn't expect him to say it don't tell anyone be quiet this has to remain a secret essentially and this brings us to lesson two there was a time part one to be silent there was a time part one to be silent it is surprising to me that jesus tells this man not to tell anyone about the miracle and so why would he do that well one reason is it was not yet time for people to recognize jesus was the messiah that might sound odd but he was following this divine timeline set by his father another reason is large amounts of public ministry or excuse me large large amounts of uh, publicity was going to hinder his ministry so jesus's plan is to be able to go into the villages where he can preach the gospel to people but as soon as he performs miracles and draws these huge crowds then his ministry at least the way he wants to conduct it is actually hindered people will be coming to him for miracles but he's not going to be doing his teaching so you could say that there would be this shift in focus from the message to the miracles which is not what jesus wanted his primary purpose was preaching and teaching that's what would save people miracles would not he wanted to continue teaching teaching in an uninhibited way he needs to be able to move around easily and freely and if people know about the miracles he'll be so swarmed by so many people he will not be able to enter towns to preach and if that sounds dramatic notice that that is exactly what happened because this man did not obey him look at verse 45 the man the leper and i can't say i fault him i'm sure he was excited about being cleansed of leprosy he goes out he begins to talk about it freely to spread the news so that notice this jesus could no longer openly enter a town now he finds himself out in desolate places and people were coming to him from every quarter and so unfortunately this man does the exact opposite of what jesus says jesus says don't talk to anyone he talks to everyone and then because of that jesus can no longer be in towns he now has to be out in desolate places so he can't reach lots of people he can only reach a few people or only reach those people who come out and find him so you could ask well, why did jesus perform miracles well there were two reasons because if, if miracles are going to hinder his ministry why perform any at all well this is my suspicion one reason is simply his compassion for people he wanted to help people but i think the bigger even the even bigger reason is that the miracles testified that he was the messiah he did have to so there was this tension he did have to perform some miracles because those miracles served as the evidence that he was the messiah or in other words he could just be some other guy that happens to be a great teacher preaching profound truths to everyone but the miracles set him apart and served as the evidence that he was the anointed one or the christ look one chapter to the right at mark 5 to see another example we'll stick just in mark 
so we don't have to flip around too much, but there's lots of examples in the other Gospels as well. Mark 5, beginning at verse 21, Jesus raises Jairus' daughter from the dead. And look at verse 43. Jesus, Mark, excuse me, Mark 5, 43, Jesus strictly charged them that no one should know this and told them to give her something to eat. So Jesus raised her from the dead, said to feed her, but not to tell anyone. Those are the two commands he gave. Turn to the right to Mark 7. Verse 31, Jesus heals the deaf man. Mark 7, 31, Jesus heals the deaf man. Look at verse 36. Jesus charged them to tell no one. But the more he charged them, the more zealously they proclaimed it. Apparently people who are healed are not particularly obedient after being healed. Look in Mark 8, verse 22. This is an interesting account. They came to Bethsaida, and some people brought to Jesus a blind man and begged him to touch him. Verse 23, Jesus took the blind man by the hand, and notice this, he led him out of the village. Why did Jesus lead the blind man out of the village? Because he knows that if he heals this man in the middle of the village, it's going to cause a huge commotion, and then Jesus himself is going to be pushed out of the village. So he takes him by the hand, leads him out of the village. When he had spit on his eyes and laid his hands on him, he asked him, do you see anything? Verse 26, and then he sent him to his home, saying, notice this, do not even enter the village. So Jesus heals the man outside the village. So Jesus goes into the village, walks out of the village with the man to heal him, heals the man, sends the man off and says, don't go back in the village because I know you're going to tell everyone what I did and then I'm not going to be able to minister there. Turn to Luke 9. Luke 9, one book to the right. More than likely, the people knew this blind man, and when he went back into town and could see, it would be dramatic. It would cause huge groups of people to flock to Jesus for the wrong reasons. Not his preaching, but for the supernatural. Luke 9, 18. It happened as, it hap, now it happened that as Jesus was praying alone, the disciples were with him, and he asked them, Who do the crowds say that I am? And they answered. They said, John the Baptist, but others say Elijah, and others that one of the prophets of old is risen. You can read in other accounts, and they give other names, like Jeremiah. And then he said to them, But who do you say that I am? And Peter answered, The Christ of God. So it sounds like many people, or perhaps even most people, were getting this super important question wrong. Knowing who Jesus is, I think we can all agree, is a super important thing, right? And they're all guessing wrong answers. They're guessing John the Baptist, they're guessing Elijah, they're guessing lots of different prophets, saying those prophets are raised from the dead, completely misunderstanding Jesus's person. Peter, so this is one of the times, you know, we've talked, Peter opens his mouth and it's either a strikeout or a home run, right? Touchdown or interception. And this is one of the touchdowns. This is one of the home runs he hits. And he says, you are the Christ of God. And so what's Jesus going to say to him? I am super glad you got this right. There's a bunch of people out there who have no idea. This is why I chose the 12 of you. Now go out there and straighten everyone out. Tell everyone the truth. Tell everyone that I am the Christ. Don't, some of them think I'm John the Baptist. Some of them think I'm Elijah. They've got this super messed up. So you go out there and correct them. Look at verse 21. 
he strictly charged and commanded them to tell this to no one saying the son of man must suffer many things and be rejected by the elders and chief priests and scribes and be killed and on the third day be raised so you almost wouldn't believe it if it wasn't rain here jesus actually told the disciples not to tell anyone that he was the christ and you obviously wonder why well you can subtly see why jesus says you can't tell anyone because i'm going to suffer a bunch of things be rejected killed and then on the third day be raised what do those have to do with each other if the disciples go and start telling everyone that jesus is the christ he's not going to look to people like the christ that he's actually going to end up being remember they're thinking of the christ who sits on the throne of david they're thinking of the christ who overthrows rome they're thinking of the davidic figure the solomonic figure the moses type figure they're not thinking isaiah 53 psalm 22 suffering servant figure so when the disciples go out and start telling them that jesus is the christ believe it or not they would become unintentional false teachers because they would be spreading i wouldn't say deception but at least confusion the same thing happened after the transfiguration jesus is transfigured before the disciples they're coming down the mountain and then listen to this matthew 17 9 jesus commanded them tell no one the vision until the son of man is raised from the dead don't tell anyone about seeing me in my glory for the same reason he told them earlier not to say that he's the christ because of the problems that it's going to cause even the and if you think about this we're at a point in luke's gospel where now i believe you're familiar with this jesus just in luke's gospel so we can assume that there were other times he did this three times told the disciples he'd be rejected and killed every single time he did tell the disciples that did they ever understand no the no never and that's why you strike the the shepherd and the sheep flee right it, that's why when jesus was crucified the disciples didn't say yep we knew this was going to happen and that's why we are the perfect picture of peace right now they were confused no matter how many times jesus told them they couldn't wrap their minds around him being crucified and so he says you can't tell anyone who i am until after i'm raised because if you go out right now you're going to be saying the wrong things they did not understand Jesus's first coming they couldn't talk to people about Jesus because they would just increase the confusion about who he was even the disciples would increase that confusion because what would they say imagine if the disciples go out and they say we saw the coming king transfigured the king who's going to sit on the throne of David who's going to deliver us ransom us from Rome people will be even more confused when he's crucified so he says after my resurrection when it's clear that i would die and have victory over my death then you can tell people that i'm the christ now we're finally ready to look at luke 19 go ahead and turn there luke 19. and the main thing i want you to keep in mind which you've got in your bulletins is there was a time to be quiet <laughs> there was a time to be silent there was a time to not spread the message and there are lots of other examples i could show you but hopefully you get that point just from these examples in mark and luke luke 19 we'll start at verse 38 for context jesus says or the people are saying at the triumphal entry blessed is the king who comes in the name of the lord peace in heaven and glory in the highest 
even from this declaration do you see the people's confusion they didn't here's what i mean the people didn't say this blessed is the suffering servant who's going to die on the cross now if they said that that would show their understanding of who jesus is you can see their confusion blessed is the king who will soon overthrow rome sit on david's throne that's the last verse we covered in the previous sermon now the new verse for this morning verse 39 the religious leaders completely resent this outpouring of praise some of the pharisees in the crowd said to jesus teacher rebuke your disciples interestingly this is the last reference to the pharisees in luke's gospel it's pretty fitting the last reference to them happens to be them trying to get jesus to stop being praised telling jesus to rebuke his disciples for worshiping god now when we read the word disciples we typically think of the 12 disciples but it's important to know disciple just means student or follower or apprentice which is why john the baptist had disciples the religious leaders had disciples and so when the religious leaders here tell jesus to rebuke his disciples it doesn't mean the 12 disciples it means all of the crowds that the religious leaders were wrongly believing were jesus's disciples these crowds are not jesus's disciples which is why and we know that because five days later they call out for jesus to be crucified but the religious leaders believing that these are jesus's disciples say you need to rebuke your disciples tell them to stop saying this and there are two possible reasons the pharisees told jesus to silence the crowd versus trying to silence the crowd themselves one possibility is jesus was so popular the pharisees didn't dare trying to silence the crowd themselves the other possibility is the religious leaders saw how enthusiastic and zealous the crowds were and so they knew that it was too large too powerful the enthusiasm for christ for them to silence the crowds themselves so they tell jesus you need to silence your disciples you're the only one they'll listen to at this moment they're all worshiping tell them to be quiet now listen to this other example you don't have to turn there but this is john 6. jesus feeds the five thousand, which made him incredibly popular and in a sense the popularity that jesus knew after feeding the five thousand is somewhat like the popularity jesus knows here at the triumphal entry which is to say the wrong kind of popularity it is a misunderstood it is a popular popularity that is misunderstood when jesus fed the five thousand, he's popular in the sense that all of these people are coming to him because they want more food they want more miracles they want to see more supernatural activity jesus was so popular after he fed the five thousand that listen to this john 6 15 perceiving that they were about to take jesus by force to make him king jesus withdrew to the mountain by himself now that's interesting too they're going to make jesus king what would you expect him to do say well this is wonderful i'm glad you recognize i'm king because i am king i'm the king of kings and i'm thrilled that you guys are going to bring me into jerusalem and recognize me as such but instead it says that he withdrew and would not let them make him king and why is that he's following the timeline this in john 6 is not his coronation his coronation is not until luke 19 at the triumphal entry now because the triumphal entry is his coronation 
Look how he responds in Luke 19.40. He says, I tell you, if these were silent, the very stones would cry out. And I just want you to grasp the significance of what you just read. This is the exact opposite response we would expect from Jesus based on what we have seen with him throughout the Gospels previously. If he followed the pattern that we have repeatedly said, he would have silenced the people. He would not have let them do this. He would not have let them recognize him as king. And this brings us to the next part of lesson two. There was a time, part two, even rocks couldn't be silent. There was a time even rocks couldn't be silent. We have moved from silence to no silence. And just so you know, this is the only, one and only time Jesus permitted a public demonstration on his behalf. The exact opposite of every situation we read about earlier. Instead of hiding, instead of escaping, instead of silencing, there's no hiding, no escaping. And there's even a declaration that if there was silence from people, then the rocks or creation itself would break that silence. So on this day, there's no silencing the welcoming of the son of David, Israel's king. The time has finally arrived for everyone to be talking about it. Nothing is going to take away from this day. And here's the other thing that I think is going on. I'll admit I'm being a little speculative when I say this. Earlier, Jesus had to quiet people who'd been healed because he had to enter towns or villages and not be swarmed. He still had considerable ministry to do. He had lots of other villages to reach, lots of other people to teach. He, or let me say it like this. Jesus had quite a bit of the course still ahead of him. Where is Jesus entering? This isn't a trick question. Where is Jesus entering? Come on, guys, where is he entering? How many more villages does he have to enter? How many more towns does he have to visit? This is it. This is the end of the course. This is the, this is the last obstacle. There's no other village. I mean, I know there's the resurrection and the ministry after that, but in terms of prior to the cross, he doesn't have to maintain the crowds so he can go into another town or village. This is the last place for him to go. He's reached the end of his course, or the last week of it. And I'll show you something else related to the triumphal entry, but it'll take a moment. Turn to Luke 4. Turn a few chapters to the left to Luke 4 to show you something else related to the triumphal entry. So here's the context. Jesus, is, Jesus was born in Bethlehem. He's raised in Nazareth. He grew up, I'm assuming, as a perfectly obedient son, but there was not evidence that he was the Messiah, at least not to his siblings. James and Jude, his half-brothers, I don't know if you know this, the same authors who wrote the books of James and Jude were Jesus' half-brothers and did not even believe he was the Messiah until after the resurrection. So when Jesus, my point is, when Jesus grew up in Nazareth, it wasn't evident to everyone who knew him. It wasn't like, hey, there's Jesus. Yeah, he's 12 years old, but he's going to be the Messiah someday. People didn't know that. So when his earthly ministry begins, he's performing miracles, and he returns to Nazareth, and now everyone has heard that he's the Messiah. Everyone has heard about all the things that he's been doing. Guess what they say to him? They're like, do it here. 
do it for us let's see it this is your hometown so show us how amazing you are look in verse 23 luke 4 23 jesus said to them doubtless you will quote to me this proverb jesus knew they were going to say this physician heal yourself what we have heard you do in capernaum do it in your hometown as well jesus knew they were going to say we heard about you performing these miracles elsewhere now go ahead and perform in your in your hometown jesus told the people that he would not be performing miracles in his hometown because of their unbelief and that did not go over well with them it was a very stinging comment that jesus would help all these other people but not these people that probably thought that they were much closer to him than the other towns who had been helped i mean if everyone's going to get a little extra from jesus it's going to be nazareth and jesus says i'm not doing anything for you because of your unbelief they were so mad about this look at verse 28 luke 4 28. when they heard these things all in the synagogue were filled with wrath filled with wrath that's how angry they were at jesus saying he wouldn't be healing them it gets worse they rose up they drove him out of the town they brought him to the brow of the hill on which their town was built so they could throw him down the cliff but passing through their midst he went away so i just want you to picture this and how dramatic and i'd say obscene this actually is obscene in the sense that they were going to murder the son of god simply because he wouldn't perform the miracles that they wanted so they drag him up to the top of this hill they're going to throw him down on and and this is what's interesting he's got a cliff on one side and a crowd on another he's pinched i mean this is like when moses leads the hebrews out of egypt and they've got the red sea and the egyptian army where's jesus going to go what's he going to do i mean the cliff the crowd there's nowhere to go i'm not going to say it's a miracle but it does say that he was able to slip through the crowd how would he do that they're furious with him how does he move through the crowd and get away like this he was able to avoid a premature death though because and this brings us to lesson two part three there was a time to die and this wasn't it he avoids this premature death right here because lesson two there was a time part three to die jesus has this course he's got the obstacles the events no turning left no turning right and he's got to reach the end of this course and so why well let me give you two other examples of the same thing happening you don't have to turn there but john 8 59 they picked up stones to throw at him but jesus hid himself and went out of the temple now i can't say exactly what the temple looked like but my suspicion is there were not a lot of places to hide so jesus is in the temple they get so upset at him they pick up stones to stone him it says that jesus hid and then he was able to go out of the temple they were that angry with him i mean can you imagine how angry would you have to be with someone to want to throw him off a cliff or or stone him to death but that's how angry the people were with jesus but he was able to escape john 10 31 the jews picked up stones again to stone him again they sought to arrest him but he escaped from their hands now why was jesus able to escape well, there's two reasons the first and most obvious reason is it wasn't yet his time to die and the second reason is it wasn't god the father's plan that jesus was going to die being thrown off a cliff or die being stoned to death 
It was his plan that he was going to die hanging on a cross where the full fury of God's wrath could be unleashed on him. Now, I don't think any of us want to be thrown off a cliff, but if it came down to being thrown off a cliff or being crucified, you're going to take being thrown off a cliff. But Jesus couldn't die that way. It wasn't going to satisfy all of the wrath that God had against us because of our sin. For him to be our substitute, he had to hang on that cross. The full fury of God's wrath poured out on him for him to drink all that was in that cup. So he escaped. Turn to the right to Luke 13. Luke 13, 31. Here's the context. Jesus is busy with his ministry when he gets this warning, a death threat. He's warned of a death threat. Luke 13, 31. At that very hour, some Pharisees came and said to Jesus, get away from here, for Herod wants to kill you. So Jesus learns that Herod wants to kill him. I know that there are lots of Herods in the Gospels. It can be hard to keep all of them straight. This is Herod Antipas, who after Herod the Great died and Herod the Great's kingdom was divided up amongst his sons, Herod Antipas was the Herod who was put over Judea. So you could think about Herod almost like the king or at least the ruler of Judea. Now the one other thing I want you to know about this Herod is he is also the Herod, who you would probably be most familiar with him for this murdering John the Baptist. So this Herod Antipas who threatens Jesus's life right now is the same Herod who recently murdered Jesus's cousin, John the Baptist. And so my point is, when Jesus gets this threat from Herod, Jesus is not going to put it past him to murder people because he knows he's murdered lots of other people, including Jesus's own cousin. But look how Jesus responds in verse 32. He said to them, go and tell that fox, behold, I cast out demons and perform cures today and tomorrow. And here it is, the third day I finish my course. This is not the response you expect from someone who is afraid of dying because he wasn't. Jesus knew he is going to continue his course and there's nobody that's going to stop him until the time has come for him to die. Not even Herod. And apparently Jesus even wanted Herod to know that. It's interesting. Jesus could have simply left, but Jesus actually told messengers to go back to Herod and tell him, you're not going to do anything to me. I'm going to finish my course. I'm going to continue doing what I'm doing until the third day when I'm resurrected. That's when my course is complete. Nobody is going to stop me from going to the cross or send me to my death earlier, not even you. Turn to John 2. John chapter 2. And I just want you to notice, we're going to go through these verses quickly. Notice the repetition of Jesus saying that his hour had not come. His hour had not come. So John 2, this is the wedding at Cana. They run out of wine. John 2, look at verse 3. When they ran out of wine, Mary said, they have no wine. And Jesus said to her, woman, what does this have to do with me? My hour has not yet come. Jesus always referred to Mary as woman because the savior-sinner relationship trumped the 
mother-son relationship. As important as Mary was to Jesus, the more important relationship between them was the savior-sinner relationship. So he didn't refer to her as woman out of disrespect, but this was the title he always had for her. And he points out to her that he's not going to be performing any miracles yet. So why not? Because that would get the events out of order. Now, as far as why he did end up doing this anyway, that'd be a whole other detour from this sermon. But the point is, Jesus says, it's not my time yet to be performing miracles. I've got the timeline that I have to follow. Turn a few chapters to the right to John 7, verse 30. I'll go through these verses quickly. John 7, 30. They're seeking to arrest him. But no one laid a hand on him because his hour had not yet come. So once again, they're going to arrest him. They're probably going to execute him. They can't lay a hand on him. Not because Jesus was some super stealthy ninja, but because he's protected. Nobody is going to be able to do anything to him until God the Father has determined that. It said his hour hadn't yet come to be arrested. We see the same thing in John 8, verse 20, the next chapter. These words Jesus spoke in the treasury as he taught in the temple, but no one arrested him because his hour had not yet come. Now turn to John 12. These will be familiar verses. We looked at many of these verses last week. This is John's version of the triumphal entry. So John 12, 12 to 19 is the triumphal entry. We looked at these verses last week. And I want you to look at what Jesus says right after this in verse 23, John 12, 23. Jesus said, the hour has come for the Son of Man to be glorified. And he has his death in view. We can tell that by the next verse. Truly, truly, I say to you, unless a grain of wheat falls into the earth and dies, it remains alone, but if it dies, it bears much fruit. It's a fascinating analogy. Just as a seed is buried in the ground to bear fruit and bring forth life, so that seed must die in that sense of being buried to bring forth fruit or life, so too Jesus must be buried in the ground to bear fruit and bring forth life, our eternal life. So Jesus repeatedly says, my hour has not come, my hour has not come, my hour has not come. After the triumphal entry, he says, my hour has come. He's in Jerusalem. He knows the time has come for him to die. Okay, now this is important. And one of the reasons we're looking at this is because it relates to the triumphal entry, the verses in Luke 19. When we talk about Jesus being the lamb, the lamb of God, John the Baptist sees him, behold, the lamb of God who takes away the sin of the world. Specifically, we're thinking of Jesus being the Passover lamb. And when Paul writes to the Corinthians in 1 Corinthians 5, I think it's verse 7, he says, for Christ, our Passover lamb has been sacrificed. Our Christ, our Passover lamb has been, has been sacrificed. So listen to this. For Jesus to be our Passover lamb, when did he have to be sacrificed? This is an, for Jesus to be our Passover lamb, when does he have to be sacrificed? He's got to be sacrificed on Passover. He had to, Jesus literally fulfilled all of the Old Testament feasts. I think they're in Leviticus 23, all seven of them. He fulfilled the first four in his first coming on the days that those feasts were celebrated. Just think about Pentecost. Pentecost was fulfilled on <laughs> Pentecost. Jesus fulfilled Passover on Passover. The divine timeline has 
Jesus, our Passover lamb, being sacrificed on Passover. Now hold on to that and turn to Matthew 26. Because there's a huge problem. Jesus must follow the divine timeline and be our Passover lamb, crucified on Passover. But there's a problem, and you see it in Matthew 26. Then the chief priests and the elders of the people gathered in the palace of the high priest, whose name was Caiaphas. They plotted together in order to arrest Jesus by stealth and kill him. Now look at verse 5. But they said, not during the feast, referring to Passover, lest there be an uproar among the people. Did you see the problem? Jesus needs to be crucified on Passover, but they're not planning to arrest him, say nothing about kill him, until after the Passover. Verse 5 says that. They're not going to arrest him during the feast. During Passover, they're going to wait until it's over because they don't want to cause an uproar with the people. So here's the problem. Jesus must be crucified on Passover, but the religious leaders are not planning to arrest him until after that. So how was that resolved? The triumphal entry. The triumphal entry was the solution. This brings us to lesson three. The triumphal entry ensured Jesus would die on time. The triumphal entry ensured Jesus would die on time. This is why Jesus said there can be no silence, there can be no quiet. Even the rocks are going to cry out. There's got to be this strong, enthusiastic declaration about me being the Messiah. And, if, and I know we jumped around a lot, and I appreciate your patience while we did. But I wanted you to see this theme that Jesus repeatedly evaded death repeatedly escaped arrest, repeatedly moved through crowds that wanted to stone him or throw him off a cliff. But when his time came, he made sure the timeline was followed. So one of the reasons for the triumphal entry, or one of the reasons Jesus said there can't be silence, is because he actually had to speed up the religious leader's desire to murder him. So you heard that correctly. To follow the divine timeline that Jesus is on, to go the course God the Father laid out for him, he needed to make sure that he wasn't killed prematurely, and he needed to make sure that he wasn't killed too late. He needed to make sure he wasn't killed too early, and he had to prevent being killed too late. Warren Wearsby explained it like this. The praise that Jesus received at the triumphal entry was to force the Jewish religious leaders to act. They hoped to arrest him after Passover, but God ordained that his son would be slain on Passover. When the religious leaders saw this great public celebration, they knew they had to arrest him. So the triumphal entry deliberately evoked this demonstration. Jesus fully realized the enthusiasm of the masses was going to enrage the religious leaders so they'd have even more reason to carry out their plot against him. It forced them to change their timetable so that it harmonizes with God's timetable. And that's what's interesting. From an earthly perspective, all of the disciples are panicking. They're fleeing. We're moving into this last week of Jesus' life. He's arrested. Nobody expects this. Even Judas, who betrayed him, freaked out when he saw Jesus being beat. He's so grieved by his betrayal. He goes and he hangs himself. It, it looks like everything is chaotic. It's complete anarchy. 
from earth's perspective but from heavenly heaven's perspective everything is unfolding exactly the way god the father wants he's orchestrating all of the details for everything to move along just the way he wants for his son to be crucified for our sins it's magnificent it is staggering the number of things that god could work out just even these last few days of jesus's life and i want to conclude with one lesson for us that i hope can encourage you as much as it encourages me lesson four god has a course for our lives i know there wasn't a lot of application in this sermon just like the last sermon but i hope you guys can be good with us having some sermons that are pretty much just about jesus and not about us right <laughs> i mean we can come together and learn about our savior and not have to have a lot about us there might be a couple more sermons like that so lesson four god has a course for our lives the longer that i'm a christian the easier it is to see that god has directed my steps or he's written my story and perhaps you feel the same we can't always see it at the time but we can look back and it comes into focus we see that there are doors that god opened and there are doors that god kept closed and there are doors that we didn't want to go through and then maybe god pushed us through them <laughs> we see that we wanted things that god didn't give us we see that we didn't want things that god did give us i'm not gonna ask for a show of hands but you can probably tell me things you wanted that god gave you and things you wanted that god didn't give you and things you didn't want that god didn't give you and things you didn't want that god did give you often we can also see that it would not have been good for us if we got what we wanted and we can see that it was good for us to get what we didn't want <laughs> so let me say it like this god the father had a plan for christ and he has a plan for us god the father had a course for his son to run and god the father has a course for you to run and numerous verses make this clear proverbs 16 9 the heart of man plans his way but the lord establishes his steps proverbs 20 24 a man's steps are from the lord how then can man understand his way jeremiah 10 23 i know o lord that the steps or that the way of man is not in himself that it is not in man who walks to direct his steps so the idea is if man isn't directing his own steps who's directing his steps that's the implication god is ephesians 2 10 we are god's workmanship created in christ jesus for good works which god prepared beforehand that we should walk in them that's the course laid out moving from obstacle to obstacle event to event there's a balance to this someone could hear this make bad decisions or sin do ungodly things and then say what just part of god's course for me this was the next obstacle I, I i married this person i'm i'm a believer this person's an unbeliever but god's directing my steps the man walks out on his family abandons his wife or his children god's directing my steps my course takes me away from my family some woman goes into a bar guy goes into a strip club a woman goes into the break room for some ungodly conversation with a man that's not her husband or a man does the same thing in the workplace buys something he shouldn't buy gets confronted and they say what god's directing my steps 
This is the path that he has for me. So there's a balance. We don't get to blame the Lord for our sinful decisions. Listen to this verse that strikes this balance perfectly. Psalm 37, 23. The steps of a man are established by the Lord when the man delights in the Lord's way. One more time. The steps of a man are established by the Lord when the man delights in the Lord's way. So the Lord establishes our steps when we delight in him. Delight in the Lord and then have your steps directed by him. Don't delight in the Lord? Perhaps take yourself off the path sinfully to your own detriment, to your own discipline that you receive. So we want to be like Jesus, going back to the beginning of the sermon, who repeatedly said throughout the Gospels, not my will, but let your will be done. People who follow Jesus' example are people who walk in the steps of the Lord. They fulfill the course that God has for them. They recognize that they are on divine timelines. They will be submitted to God. We will be prayerful, see how God wants us to walk in those good works that he has prepared beforehand for us. If you have any questions or I can pray for you in any way, I'll be up front after service. We do have a baptism first after the closing song. You can sit back down for the baptism, but I'll be available and coming up to, to see Jennifer or, or congratulate her. Some, she's newer to the church. Some of you might not know her that well yet, but let her know that you're encouraged by what God's doing in her life. And I'll also be available if, I, if you need, would like to speak with me. Father, I thank you for the course that your son was willing to take. I thank you that you laid things out for him the way you did for our redemption. It was for us. And I thank you for that, Lord, that Jesus was willing to walk that course even to the cross, to be crucified in our place, that his death became our death, his burial, our burial, his resurrection, our resurrection. Even as we watch this baptism that will be taking place, it's a picture, it's a playing out, a demonstration of what transpired with Jesus. Jennifer's death, burial, resurrection, dying, lowered under the water, buried, raised up out of the water, portraying what has happened with each of us spiritually. And so we thank you for what Christ has done for us. We thank you that he died for us, was buried, and raised again, Lord. I pray you bless the remaining weeks as we move into this last week of Christ's life. I don't know that there will be more important places in Scripture to learn than what than this last week. And I pray, Lord, that you reveal all the truths for us. Be with us this week as we serve you. Help us to be confident in your plan, carrying out the course that you have for us. And we pray this in Jesus' name. Amen.